Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So I don't normally do this with a new study and a new book, but um, I thought it'd be kind of useful to do this for the book of Hebrews. And you know, sometimes, and I'll just encourage you as you're doing your own Bible study, sometimes it's kind of good to do the who, what, where, when, how, why, and kind of just kind of fill in some answers. You know, you ask those questions as you get into a study, and then you, you kind of fill them out. You dig through a little bit and try to answer the who, what, where, when, why, and how as best you can. That usually really helps. I know it helps me when I do a Bible study, and so I'm actually going to kind of do that this morning. Kind of, it's not technically an introduction, but I, I kind of wanted to go through the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Not necessarily in that order either, by the way. So first of all, who? Well, the first question I would say is, who's the author? And you know, it doesn't actually say in the letter who the author is. There are a lot of speculations. Uh, a lot of people think that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, some people even think that uh, Barnabas uh, wrote the book of uh, Hebrews, or possibly Apollos. Um, I've even heard that some think that Priscilla um, wrote the book of Hebrews. And, you know, we really don't know. Um, my own personal feelings is that Paul probably wrote it, but I'm no expert, so you can take that. Uh, and if you had another couple bucks, you can go buy a cup of coffee with that. So <laughs> um, it used to be like another quarter you could buy a cup of coffee, but you know, it's a lot more expensive now. So who's the author? The bottom line is we don't really know. But one thing we do know, it was a person who was filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And technically, as is true with all the Gospels, all the books of the Bible, God is the author. In fact, you'll see that in the very beginning of Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So we know that God is speaking here in the book of Hebrews. It's not the last chapter, but close to the end of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 25, we read this. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, uh, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So really, all the way through the book of Hebrews, God is speaking to People. And, you know, God has been speaking in times past. All the way from the Garden of Eden, God has been speaking to mankind. And God is still speaking to man in these last days. And he's speaking to us in his son, Christ, as we'll see that in a few minutes. So who is the author? Well, ultimately, God's the author. Who is the epistle writ written to? Um, that's, you know, it, maybe it's kind of a no-brainer for you, but it, it's the epistle to the Hebrews. That's what my Bible says in the title. Um, that's what uh, the translators say, well, this must have been written to the Hebrews. Um, who were these Hebrews? Well, they were Hebrew believers. These were Jewish people that came to faith in Christ, and they were genuine believers. They were genuine believers. Um, the reason why I say that is in chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That applies to believers. In chapter 4, verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And in chapter 10, it says this in verse 19. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a priest, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That wouldn't apply to an unbeliever, someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So this letter was written to Hebrew believers, genuine Hebrew believers. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, it's important to understand because when we get to passages like in chapter 6, there's a warning to these Hebrew believers. A lot of times people take that and go, well, they can't be believers because of the seriousness of this warning. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 6. So it's important to understand that they were believers. The second thing that comes out as we study this is that they were second generation believers. What I mean by that is that somebody told them about the Lord Jesus Christ. These were not eyewitnesses to Jesus, his resurrection and his, you know, his, his crucifixion. They weren't eyewitnesses to it. Somebody told them about it. The reason why I say that is in chapter 2, verse 3, the writer says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to the, us by those who heard him? So it was passed on. You know, it's kind of the same with you and I, right? I don't think anyone here was, was alive when Jesus was on the earth. I mean, I know I look kind of old, but I'm not that old. Um, you know, somebody told us about Jesus. Maybe it was your parents or a Sunday school teacher or somebody witnessed to you and you learned about Jesus Christ and as a result, you believe you've put your faith in Christ as your Savior. So we can kind of relate to these Hebrew believers in this sense. So this letter is written to Hebrew believers. And you know what I was thinking about when I was preparing this was I was thinking about the seven letters to the churches in Revelation because in the letters uh, to the churches in Revelation, Jesus has something good to say to the churches and something not so good to say to the different churches. And, you know, it's kind of the same in the book of Hebrews. There are some good things that the writer says about the Hebrew believers that he's writing to. He says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So these guys, they were ministering to people. They were, they were serving people. And so that's something good to say about them. There are a few things, however, that were not so good about the Hebrew believers. In chapter 5, verse 11, the writer says, you guys have become, become dull of hearing. In fact, he calls them babes in Christ. Babes means it's somebody that, you know, they haven't matured past their initial faith in Christ Jesus. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, by this time, you guys ought to be teachers. But I got to go back over the elementary things with you. That, that's not so good that they hadn't grown in their faith. They're also warned or encouraged in chapter 10, verse 25, to not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some. And so there were some that were just, they were kind of getting out of fellowship. In fact, also in chapter 6, or chapter 10, in verse 36, it says, you have need of endurance. So there were some things that were good. They, were, they ministered to people, but there were some things that were not so good. So where was this letter written to? Well, or where was it written, I should say? Again, we don't really know, but possibly from Rome, because at, towards the end in the greeting at the end of the letter, it says, those from Italy greet you. So the author 
whoever it was, was probably in Rome when he wrote the letter to the Hebrews. When was it written? This is kind of a little bit more of a significant thing. Most translators and scholars think that it was written in the late 60s AD. Sometime in between that, however, they believe it was before the destruction of the temple that was in 70 AD. And the reason why, there's a clue in chapter 10, verse 11. The writer says, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And when he says that in chapter 10, verse 11, it's in the present tense. In other words, it was still ongoing at the time. And there's no mention of the destruction of the temple or ending of sacrifices in his letter. So it was later... And there's different, way, different ways that they've determined that. It was later, like towards the late, you know, around 60 AD or somewhere in there, and yet before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple. So we answered a few of the questions, um, but how about the what? what? What's this letter all about? It's interesting. If you go and you look through this, this letter, the word better is found 13 times in the letter. The word perfect, now I counted nine times, but from what I understand, if you go into the original Greek, there's more than nine times the word perfect is mentioned in this letter. The word eternal is mentioned five times in this letter. And what's this letter about? It's a contrast. It's a contrast because, it, as we'll see here in chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, Jesus Christ is better. He's better than contrasted to the angels to the prophets and to Moses. The covenant he initiated is perfect, contrasted to the covenant of the law. Our redemption through his sacrifice is eternal, and that's contrasted towards the temporary uh, Levitical priesthood. So those things are going to come out in the book of Hebrews that this letter, this, the author is, is encouraging these Hebrew Christians about. Why was it written? Well, these Hebrew believers, and we'll see this in this letter, they were in danger of turning away from their faith in Christ. They had come to faith, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet they were getting to a place where they were in danger of turning back away from Christianity and kind of getting back into Judaism, returning to Judaism. You know, in chapter 12, I'm going to quote this to you, verse 26 and 27. The writer says this, But now he has promised, speaking of God, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And the reason why I bring that up, again, it was before the destruction of the temple. These Jewish believers were tempted to go back into Judaism, back into all the sacrifices and attending all the all the all the the you know the festivals and all the things that had to do with Judaism, and yet the writer is speaking. You know, there's coming a time that all that that stuff is going to be shaken to its core when the when the dis, uh, temple's destroyed. I mean, that was the core of Judaism, the temple. And so that's going to be shaken. There's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on. <laughs> um, but right now, the temple is standing. And like I said, it's the centerpiece of Judaism. The believers at this point had not experienced hard persecution, but that time would come after the destruction of the temple. 
So this letter is a letter to warn them and also to encourage them. And we see that in chapter 13, verse 22. He says, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. So this letter, it's not a condemnation. It's meant to encourage these Hebrew believers. And you, you might think, well, why would they be tempted to return to Judaism? You got to understand their culture. <laughs> it was just it was Judaism, their culture where they lived. It's like if you were uh, in a in a Muslim majority Muslim country and you come to faith in Christ, everything around you, the, your, your civil society, you know, your government, your laws, everything is based on Islam the culture everything is based on islam and so you you really stand out for one and it's it's difficult and so it'd be the same thing for these jewish believers there in jerusalem at that time and you know they grew up with the sacrifices they grew up with going to the synagogue and so it was just kind of ingrained in them and so you know going it, it, it'd be tempted to go back to the religious practices because, you know, you do something, you feel better about it, right? You go and you do, okay, I'm doing my, whatever my religious thing is, and now I feel better about myself. So rather than relying on their righteousness being in Christ, found in Christ by faith, it's a lot easier. If I do something, I feel good about it for myself. And so that would be one of the temptations. They wouldn't have to rely on their own, uh, on Christ's righteousness by faith. They could rely on their own if they went through the, the religious motions. Not only that, but there'd be no personal cost. Because you can imagine in that culture, there was a cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ. It would have cost something. You would stand out in the community. You would be, instead of going uh, you know, against the flow, if you're going back to Jerusalem, you're kind of going back in the flow. And so it, it, understandably, it'd be easy or tempting for these believers to kind of drift back into that and it's a danger and so that's what this letter is about it's warning them about how not to go back because Jesus is so much better the sacrifice that he made is permanent it's perfect and the new covenant it just it's so much better than the old covenant and that's basically what this letter is about so we can stop and go to the next book no I'm just kidding <laughs> so let's dig into chapter one the author starts this letter describing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And look at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. We'll stop right there. In times past, God spoke at various times. If you had the King James Bible, this is, I'm reading out of the New King James, if you read the King James, it would have said at sundry times. And the word means in many portions. In other words, it's not a complete revelation of who he is or God's will for man. There were many separate revelations throughout the different, throughout the ages. Um, each only was kind of like a portion of the truth. There were fragments here and there. And as we were in the book of Numbers, we kind of looked at some of those fragments. We, we look at something and we say, you know what, there's a shadow of Jesus Christ in there. There's a, there's a picture, there's a fragment of a truth in there. And that's what the Old Testament was. And in times past, that's how God spoke to man, in fragments and in various ways. King James Version means in diverse manners. And it's not the different ways that God spoke to the prophets, but the different ways that God spoke by the prophets 
to the nation of Israel. He's spoken one way through Moses. He's spoken another way through Elijah. Um, other times, he's spoken other ways through Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these different prophets. He's spoken different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The uh, Young's literal translation says this, in these last days did he speak to us in a son. So it's not just necessarily what Jesus said, it's what he is. Jesus is God's son uh, and he reveals the Father. And the point that I'm trying to get across here, what the writer is trying to get across here in, these, in verse 2, is that Jesus is God's final word. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. God has said everything he has to say in Christ. He has no P.S. Ever wrote a letter to someone and you, you think you got it all down? It's like, oh, I forgot to add that. P.S. You know, and you write something. You know, the, the cults, like the Mormons, for example, they believe that, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon is God's P.S. to mankind. Like, it, the, the, the revelation wasn't complete, so P.S., there's this other stuff. But that's not true. Everything is complete in his son. He is God's final word. And therefore, he's greater than the prophets. And that's the other point that this writer is bringing out. Israel had a great regard for the prophets. In fact, Jesus even addresses it in Luke 11, verse 47. He says, woe to you. He's speaking to the Pharisees. For you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. They built monuments to the, to the prophets. The very prophets that would tell them to repent and turn back to God, that they would, they would kill them. You know? And that's what Jesus is making that point to them. So they regarded, highly regarded the prophets of old, of the Old Testament. Well, who were the prophets? Well, they were men called by God. But you see, Jesus is so much greater than the prophets. He is God's son. And so next here, the father is going to start describing his son to us. So in verse 2, he says, In these last days spoken to us by his son, and then the first thing he tells us, whom he has appointed heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. An heir is someone who receives his possession by right of sonship or daughtership, you could say. Uh, in other words, you, you, you receive it from being a blood relative, a relative of someone. Heirship goes with sonship. That principle is illustrated in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. In there, Paul says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. He's talking about you and I. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But the principle is illustrated there that sonship, excuse me, being an heir, it comes from being a son or being a daughter necessarily, you know, either way. Um, and so who, what is he the heir of? He's the heir of all things, all creation all authority. So that's the first thing. He's the heir. The second thing we find out, there's the end of verse 2, through whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is the creator. It doesn't mean that he was just an instrument that the Father used to create what he was, what he was creating. It, what, it, what it really implies is that there's a different relation. Uh, there's a different aspect of the relation of the triune nature of God during creation, that was the son's job. It's kind of hard to explain. We, have, we just started John chapter 1 
on Wednesday nights, and I said this on, in, on Wednesday night uh, because we kind of talk about the same thing. It's kind of like the father is the architect and the son is the carpenter. You know, the architect plans it all, the son gets it done, you know. Um, that's kind of, it's probably not the best way to, to figure it out, but it's kind of the way I'm, I'm trying to explain it. So through him, through the son, God made the world. So Jesus is the creator. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, holding all things by the word of his power. So he's the brightness of his glory. And if you look at your Bibles, his is italicized. At least mine is. Um, and so that's, that's introduced by the translators because they say, well, it fits in there. Young's literal translation says this, who being the brightness of the glory and the impress of his substance, subsistence. In other words, the sun is the brightness, and that word is the word it's effulgence. It's not something that we use commonly, but it means outshining. It means to emit light or emit splendor. It's kind of difference, it's the same difference as like the moon and the sun. You know, and on a nighttime uh, full moon night, you know, you come out there, man, the, the moon is so bright. But the moon is not radiating light, it's just reflecting light, right? It's reflecting the light of the sun. The sun is what's radiating the light. And that's kind of what this word means. It's not that Jesus is just a reflection of God. He actually is God emanating his glory. So he's the brightness He's the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That word express image means to carve. And it, what it's relating, talking about is in the sense of engraving. And in those days, they would engrave coins. You know, they have a coin with Caesar's likeness on it. And the impression that that, 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 that tool would make to impress on that coin, it was considered an exact representation and so it would, it would make the exact representation. And that's what this is saying. He's the express image of his person. And then the end of verse 3, upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding. When you think about that, you maybe you think of like, uh, you know, I, I was helping my... Uh, uh, son and my, my granddaughter granddaughters, I said, moved yesterday and I noticed in my granddaughter's room she had a globe and uh, the globe had, you know, it's one of those ones with the stand and, you know, you, you think the stand is upholding the earth, you know, you look at that and that's kind of, you look at that, well, he's upholding all things by the word of his power but that would kind of imply that it's just a stationary you know, it's just holding it that's not what this word means it means sustaining but also movement which is kind of interesting. It, it deals with the burden not as a dead weight, but as a continual movement. And what, what, what I'm trying to get across here, the sun is not just passively upholding all things, all creation, but actively upholding all creation. And if you think about the implications of that, Jesus, the sun, is fully aware of what's going on in creation. Think about how long-suffering he is because it's his word. He's, he's upholding creation. And, and just think of the long-suffering of the son and his mercy when you think of all the junk that's going on in the world. He's patiently just holding on. Upholding all things 
by the word of his power. But there will come a time. Psalm 46 verse 6 says this. He, uh, the nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. It's just, it's just at, one, at some time, the sun is going to say, that's it. And creation is going to dissolve. In fact, Peter says it in chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, people are really concerned about global warming. I tell you, this, this is the ultimate global warming when, when the sun says, that's it, it's done. You know, the disciples, they actually had a, had a kind of a, just a little glimpse of that power when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with them and a great storm rose up on the sea and they thought they were going to drown and Jesus just spoke to the storm and said, be still and just stopped. And it just, it completely rocked their worlds. You know, it completely blew these guys away. They're like, who has the authority and power that he can just say a word and a storm stops right then and there? That's the power that the Son has, upholding all things by the word of his power. And then he says there in verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had by himself purged our sins. And of course you think of it, well, yeah, the son was incarnate, right? Jesus Christ was born and he, by his own body, purged our sins. You know, he died on the cross for us. But what the writer is also kind of alluding to is the day of atonement. Because you remember on the day of atonement, and we kind of talked about that in the book of Numbers. The high priest on one day a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies all by himself. Nobody else could enter. He would go in by himself and offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. Him alone. That's what the writer is kind of referring to or alluding to. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever been in trouble before. I have. <laughs> and you know, the thing, sometimes when, you're, when you get into trouble and you're getting punished, it's a lot easier to bear when there's somebody else with you that's getting punished alongside with you, right? It's like you, there's, there's, you know, there's misery and company. You have company, somebody to suffer the punishment alone. You know, It's easier to bear punishment when you're not alone. It's a totally different thing when you're all by yourself. And it's just you, and you're being punished for what you did. The band ACDC wrote this song, Highway to Hell. I don't encourage you to listen to it, but in the lyrics... It says, one of the part of the lyrics says, going down party time, my friends are going to be there too. Talking about hell. They're on the highway to hell. My friends are going there. It's going to be a party when I get there. You know what Jesus described hell as? The lake of fire? He described it as outer darkness in the Gospels. Many are going to be there in the lake of fire, but they're not going to be with anyone. They're going to be in outer darkness it's like solitary confinement for eternity, suffering. And so when, when it says that he himself bur purged our sins, Jesus Christ bore our punishment alone. He was, had no companions. He had bore it alone for you and I. And why did he do that? So that you and I would never bear punishment alone and be in outer darkness. So he suffered alone so that you would never suffer alone. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Again, going back to our study in Numbers, and we talked about the tabernacle. And, you know, if you look at the tabernacle construction, there's no chairs. There's furniture in the tabernacle. There's table. There's different, there's lampstand, uh, altars and stuff. But there is no chairs in the temple. Why? Because the work of the priests was never complete. They were always working in the temple. The work is never finished. And yet Jesus Christ, our high priest, finished the work of redemption and now he sits on high. You know, that would also speak to the Jewish culture because in the Jewish culture, a rabbi would sit and all the disciples would stand and listen to him. In fact, if we wanted to be, you know, correct, biblically correct, I'd be sitting on a chair and all of you would be standing up listening. Not that I'm greater than you, but I'd be teaching. You would all be standing listening. That's, that's, that's the picture in that culture. Well, Jesus finished the work of redemption and he sat down and he's sitting down in authority but like we just talked about it he's not idle he's not like taking a break so I helped I helped uh, do some moving yesterday and got home in the afternoon and man I sat down and it was like <laughs> it's like I'm not doing a thing you know I'm like I'm just sed sedentary at that point um, but that's not what Christ did he's not idle he's actively actively upholding all creation not only that, but he's interceding, the Bible says, for you and I. He's praying for you and I. So verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, and has, as he has by excellence, by inheritance, excuse me, obtained a more excellence, a more excellent name than they. He's become so much better than the angels. So this is the next thing he's pointing out. The son is greater than the angels. Now, in uh, Jewish culture, angels were highly, highly venerated. And it kind of goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. In there, I'll read it to you. It says, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. When it says, it's talking about Mount Sinai, when, the, when, the, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. He, it says that he came with ten thousand of his saints. Well, they say those were angels. That's what it's referring to, angels. And so according to Jewish tradition, the law was delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai by the hand of angels. They were kind of like the go-between between God and men. That was the Jewish tradition. And it's not just a, well, it's just, you know, something that they believed like it was a, like a wives' tale because Stephen in uh, Acts chapter 7, he actually refers to that event and talks about the angels. Paul mentions it referring to the angels in Galatians 3. So this was really ingrained in the Jewish thought, and so they really revered angels. And that's probably why, at least they partially why, why they venerated angels so much. But the point of the author here is now that Jesus is greater than the angels. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be a son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Which angel did he ever say that to? Is what the writer is saying. Now, granted, in the book of Job, the angels in a couple different places they're collectively referred to as the sons of God, the little g, the sons of God. But there was no angel that individually was given the title the son of God. 
And so it says there, uh, he quotes from the Old Testament, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, a Messianic Psalm, by the way. From all eternity, the son... God the Son existed. I mean, he, he was there. He's not created. He's a creator. So from all eternity, he was God's Son. And yet, Paul says this in Romans 1, verses 3 through 4, who was born the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So there's, and I can't really explain it. I'm not that, I'm not that good. But there's something that took place where at the resurrection, it's like that was where D, G, uh, God declared, the Father declared that Jesus is in fact his son. But again, he was the son all through, all through eternity past. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's a quote from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 and it has to do with Solomon. But prophetically, the writer here is pointing it to or applying it to Jesus Christ. And you remember when Jesus said, when he's talking about Solomon, he says, a greater than Solomon is here. Well, the point is, he's greater than the angels. He's a son, and the angels are servants. And we'll see that as we get to verse 7 a little in a little bit here. But verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And some of the cults will say, aha, see, Jesus isn't God because he's not eternal. He says there that he was the firstborn. They'll go, haha, you Christians, you're wrong. Well, listen, in Psalm 89, verse 27, there's a, there's a verse that says this, also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And that's either referring to David or many people say he's referring to Solomon. To me, it doesn't matter because either one of them, you know, David was the runt of his family litter. He was like, you know, one of the youngest guys and or the youngest, I think. Solomon wasn't the firstborn either. And yet here the scripture says he's firstborn. Ephraim, one of Joseph's sons, is referred to Ephraim as the firstborn. And yet technically we know that Manasseh was the firstborn. Israel, also a.k.a. Jacob, was, is called the firstborn in the Bible, and yet technically Esau was the firstborn. And so when we come across a passage that talks about the firstborn, it doesn't necessarily mean birth order, but it means preeminence. And in this case, it means preeminence. Jesus Christ, the Son, is creator. He's not created, and he has preeminence over all creation. And so there in verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. That is a quote taken from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Now, if you were to get in your Bibles and dig to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, you probably wouldn't read that and go, wait a minute. How does that quote in there? Well, actually, it's from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's where that verse is, where it says, let all the angels of God worship him. But the point is, He's greater than the angels because he's worshipped by the angels. Again, the Jewish people, they venerated the angels. Verse 7, he says, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So the angels of God, they're servants. They're created spirits. They don't have any bodies. They can assume human form at times, and they have at different times. 
We read in the Gospels how sometimes they served Jesus on the earth, and they are, according to the scriptures, serving him now, and they're actually serving you and I now, too. They're servants for, uh, uh, well, we'll get to that in a little bit later. But he, they serve you and I. We'll see that in verse 14. So of the angels, he says, verse 7, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. This is the Father speaking. And he says, your throne, O God. So, I mean, that really should settle it uh, finally. You know, the Father is speaking to the Son and calling him God. So, so again, you, you, you know, the, the cultists, I don't know what they do with Hebrews chapter 1. We talked about that on Sunday, on Wednesday night. You know, I don't know how they get around John 1, 1. Talks about the word, and you know, in there, if you ever read that before. So the Father is speaking to the Son. When we get to the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, verse 11, it says this, all, and this is what John saw in heaven. He says, all the angels stood around the throne. Again, somebody's sitting and they're standing. You guys remember the picture now. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces, faces before the throne and worshiped God. So the Son is worshiped by the angels. He's greater than the angels. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The Son is righteous. I like what Psalm 33, verses 4 and 5 says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You know, you look at what's going on in the world, maybe in your own life, and maybe you've had some injustices done to you. And you, maybe you've had some things where it just does not make sense. I don't understand why this is going on. Listen, the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. What he does is truth. There's a lot of lying going on in our world today, but Jesus speaks truth. He is truth. He loves righteousness and justice. And so, you know, sometimes... I may not understand why things are being happening the way they are. I may not, uh, I may not like what's going on, but you know what? I, I go back to scriptures like this and go, the Lord's righteous and he's just, and he's gonna do the right thing and I'm just gonna trust. I'm gonna trust in him. Verse 10, and you Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the work and the heavens are the work of your hands. Again, speaking of the Son being the creator, and you think about that, um, laying the foundation of the earth and the heavens. Think of how many stars and, and suns and galaxies are in the, in the heavens, and he created all of them. When I think about that, I think of Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Think about that. There's nothing too hard for our God. You might be going through a difficult thing. There's nothing too hard for God. He is able. He's able and he's powerful. 
Verse 11, they will perish, but you will remain. And they, all, uh, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Again, the angels are servants. They're serving the Lord. They did serve him while he was on earth. They're serving him in heaven now, but they're also serving you and I. The God sends them out on missions for you and I, because you and I are the ones that will inherit salvation. And so we get to verse or chapter 2, verse 1. The very beginning verse says, therefore. So all these things that we've read in chapter 1, there's a reason why the author is saying that. And we get to verse 1. Therefore, we must give the most, most, excuse me. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We need to give the more earnest heed lest we drift away. That's what the writer is telling those Hebrew believers because they were in danger of drifting away. I like what John Gill says about giving the more earnest heed. He says this, giving heed takes in a close consideration of gospel truths, a diligent inquiry into them, a valuable esteem of them, a strict adherence to them, and a watchfulness to retain what is heard and to conform unto it. I'm going to touch on that in a few minutes here. But he says there, we must give the more, more, more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That word drift away, it means figuratively to slip away. And, and the picture is of a ship that's just drifting in a current. And it goes past where it was supposed to anchor, where it was supposed to moor. It just drifts by. This last uh, summer, my wife and I went, uh, it was one Sunday evening, it was, a, it was a nice, beautiful, warm Sunday evening, and, and we didn't have anything going on, and, and I said, let's go intertubing down the Zumbro River. So that's what we did. We drove to Hammond and uh, parked a car down in Millville, which is, I don't know, a few miles past, and we got, in, we got in the river at Hammond, and we floated down the river to Millville. It was very peaceful. I saw eagles flying over. And it's just, it was a beautiful evening, great to do. So we were like, man, this, we want to do that again. So then we invited some people, and some of, some of you from the church went, came with us, and we went, you guys know who you are. <laughs> went drifting, or went, went you know, intertubing with us. So anyways, so we were drifting. Teresa and I did it the first time, and uh, I had never been on that section of the river before, so we're kind of like, we got to make sure we get off at the right point because otherwise we're going to miss where we're parked. And where we had parked, if you know where Millville is, there's a bridge that goes across the river, and there's a little beach landing, and, and just, just past that is where we parked our car. And so in our minds, we're like, okay, when we see that bridge, we got to start getting over to the right side of the river because that, otherwise that, we're going to drift right past. And so, you know, we did that. So anyways, as we're coming with these other people that were with us, we're like, okay, if you see the bridge, because, you know, we're kind of all spread out. If you see the bridge, you start making your way over to the right because you don't want to drift past the, uh, the point. And one of the people that was with us, uh, one, of the, one of them, I don't remember which one exactly. Actually, I think I do. Anyways, he, 
he kept drifting and he wasn't really paying attention. And at a point, it's like, hey, you're going to miss it. And he had to like get up and, and, you know, it's not a, it's not like a dangerous river, but it's got a pretty kind of a tough, it's got a kind of a swift current. And so he had to kind of make his way back to get back to where we were. He almost drifted past it. That's the picture that's being painted here. And that can happen to you and I spiritually. We can drift past. You know, drifting away happens when we do nothing. You don't have to do anything. You just, you're just drifting. And if you're not careful, you'll drift past. And so I quoted earlier John Gill, take a close consideration of gospel truths, a diligent inquiry into them. You and I, we need to be a regular reader of the Word of God. We need to be in the Word, reading it. We need to be a student of God's Word. You know, you get in, you, you start reading your Bible, ask the who, what, where, when, why, how, as best you can. It'll help you. Start studying it, meditating on God's Word. He says we should have a valuable esteem of Scripture. In other words, treat it as it is. It's God's Word. It's not just some good maxims to live by. I was in a, in a place and I saw a little plaque that said, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it says it's the golden rule. Well, you guys are familiar with that. It's almost like it's a good maxim. It's just a good saying. To, it's a good thing to live by. We need to treat God's word like it's, it's the food for our soul because that's what it is. We need to have a strict adherence to it. In other words, we need to obey God's word. James says, you know, don't be just a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, because if you're a hearer of the word, you're deceiving yourself. I remember many times reading the word or, or hearing a good message or something, and I'm like, man, that's really good, and I felt good about it because I read it, or I, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't do anything. I'm just deceiving myself. So we need, to, we need to obey God's word. We need to have a watchfulness to retain what is heard. You know, I encourage you, if you've never tried memorizing Scripture, try memorizing Scripture. Remember it. Internalize it. And the Holy Spirit will bring it back into your memory uh, when you need it. And then to conform to it. And that really means to apply what you study. Just apply it in your life. Allow God's Word to transform you because that's what it'll do. So verse 2, he says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness of both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So the writer is, is making a point here. If violation of the law, which was delivered by angels, resulted in punishment, in other words, if you, if you disobeyed the law and it was given by angels, there's a punishment that's associated with it. How much more, the writer says, serious is it for you and I to neglect the message that was delivered by the Son who's greater than the angels? To neglect, I like that, you know, we're not to neglect so great a salvation. We really think of what Christ did for us, what our, what, how he's praying for us, how, how there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We have such a great salvation. My encouragement to you this morning is don't neglect it. Don't drift away. 
He says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Speaking of the apostles, the different, the different people who, who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then they started sharing the gospel, and that's where the church was growing. Peter says this, 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we, Peter Stock, talking about himself and the other disciples, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this message, it was given by the disciples who were eyewitnesses. God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. You know what kind of jumps out at me? You, say the you see the Trinity in here. It's talking about the Father. We see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit in there. But the last thing I want to close with and just remind you in scriptures, there's a principle in scriptures that says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so here we have Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, the Son, who's revealing the Father to us. We have the Father who's speaking of the Son as we've been reading here in chapter 1. We have the Holy Spirit confirming the word with signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have the prophets of old that had fragments of pictures of Jesus that, you know, they were longing to get the whole picture and they would get a little fragment and, and they, they were like, man, I, I wish I could get the full picture to understand. But they were given fragments. And then finally, the apostles themselves who witnessed his majesty. We have all these things. So it's not even two or three. I counted one, two, three, four, five. How much more valuable and how much more true is who Jesus Christ is, the message of the gospel for you and I? And so, again, we would do well to heed these things that we've heard lest we drift away. I pray that none of us ever drift away. And, you know, we're in a culture that's the flow is strong. It's like you're, you feel like sometimes you're standing in a river that the, it's like everything is just, you're just barely hanging on. It's like everything wants to drag you downstream. That's what it's like to be a Christian. And I got bad news for you, I guess, in a sense. It's not going to get any better. That flow is going to get stronger and stronger. It's going to be harder to stand up for righteousness. It's going to be harder to stand up for Jesus Christ. So we need to pay close attention. We need, to, we need to put so much emphasis into the word of God, lest we drift away as well. Why don't we go, Lord, in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning and for your word. Lord, I thank you for the testimony we have. And that, Lord Jesus, the, the God that we worship, our Savior, he is greater than the angels. In fact, he's worshiped by the angels. He's greater than the prophets of old. He is your message to mankind. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were obedient to die on a cross for our sins.
that you were the perfect high priest who bore our punishment alone so we would never suffer your, the Father's wrath alone in utter, outer darkness. We have such a great salvation, Lord. I pray for each one of us that we would not neglect your salvation. So we thank you for your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.